How does Network Effect contribute to racial inequality and what can investors do about it? Today on Off the Sidelines. Welcome back to season two of Off the Sidelines, your guide to becoming a better investor. The world needs a new generation of great companies and we need your help. I'm your host. I'm Chris Wink. I'm the co-founder and I'm the CEO of Technically. We're a ragtag bunch of reporters and connectors who run a, a news organization that reports on economic change and entrepreneurship and investment. Mostly it's just a ruse for me to be able to pull BLS data and nerd out about it. This is a podcast that takes a deep dive into trends in business investing. That's that's angel investing in venture capital, signing individual checks, otherwise seeing early stage investing as an asset class. Off the Sidelines is sponsored by Project Entrepreneur, a program by UBS. Make sure to check out Project Entrepreneur. In this episode, we're going to start the season with the issue of network effect. What is it? How does it contribute to systemic and racial inequality? How can business investment maintain it? And more importantly, what can it do about it? To do that, I'm joined by my colleague, Michele Graham. Hey, Michele. Hey there. So you're technically DC market editor. This is true, right? This is very true. So let's break down some terms. Michele, what does network effect mean to you? Well, to me, I see it as kind of like a spider web. So my network is naturally going to build on itself um, and, and the connections that my other people in my network make. But I'm ultimately at the source of all of those connections. You're the source. So, all right. So you're the spider. We like yes. spiders. So what's so wrong about us all building our own spider webs? Well, if, if our spider webs never intersect, how are we maximizing our network potential? For instance, in 2019, $136 billion in venture capital went to startups. If that funding is pretty much entirely in your spider web and not in mine, how do I make it over there? How do right. I get that much? Right. So, okay. So if we have centuries and generations of systemic exclusion, we can call it oppression of black people, of other non-white Americans, of immigrants and women, and lots of other underrepresented groups that don't look like me. If we got this forcefully legislated and inborn distancing of our spider webs, then your spider web like, keeps getting easier to navigate, though, and mine can be a lot more limited. That's how I see bingo. it. Bingo. Yep. So, all right. So, Michelle, you've reported on this beat of economic change and, and technology development and entrepreneurship for, for a couple of years now. So, shoot me straight. Do investors, those who work at institutional firms and, and those who do business investing on their own, angel networks and the like, do they have a responsibility to change something here when, you know, 2% of VC dollars go to firms with majority black ownership? As an example, do investors have a responsibility to change something here or are they just cogs in a system that are nothing to do with it. Well, I sure think they do, and I hope that they think they do, but I wanted to better understand how, so we actually had a conversation I introduced. Introduced, yeah. So this is technically his big annual conference on building better workplaces. It's, it's normally in the spring, but for some reason in 2020, we postponed it and went all virtual just, just back here in September. Right. So the plan, the plan was for me to lead a conversation on this topic of network effect and racial inequality, how those two correlate. You were going to have a couple of voices that would set up this idea, and they will be. They're going to be the bones of this episode. Yes, right, right. Those two voices are Kelly Hoey, an author and network expert. She's done angel investing and more recently published a book actually on networking that was a tool to understand how to build a network, especially for underrepresented founders. And Nazir Quadri, he's a former Village Capital guy 
who is right now raising his own fund under the Zeal Capital Partners brand, actually. Kelly Huey started us off by referencing her book, Build Your Dream Network, Forging Powerful Relationships in a Hyperconnected World. You know, the lessons that I put in that book when it came out in, you know, 2017, 2018 still hold true today. Uh, and perhaps people realizing in this time that we are so isolated physically that networks are more more or even, you know, maybe people waking up to how valuable they are and why it's really important that we pay attention to our digital footprint our structure of our networks as well, because, you know, this isn't secondary anymore. This is not something you can just pick up on the fly because there's a meetup or something to go to. This is something you got to pay attention to every single day. That's right. And Michelle, you are technically reporter, uh, journalist. So you have a lot of conversations about how relationships happen. In this case, between entrepreneur and investor, entrepreneur and partner, that's true, right? I'm not lying about that. Yeah, correct. I think more recently, you know, I'm not going to crack jokes about you just yet. More recently, right. I, I think you, I, I've talked to you a bit about this, but I'm just interested in, of course, Black founders, how they land these investments and how how to get more people in the room that look like Black founders who are investors and getting them up to speed with with just sitting on, you know, different investor pools. I, I recently was just digging on a story Basically, this this angel investor group is all white men, and I and I told the founder of this group we had a very candid conversation that if I was an entrepreneur walking in the room, I'd be intimidated. I'd probably lose my train of thought because no one sitting in front of me that I'm trying to convince that my idea is important and I need money to support it. None of them look like me. So yeah, transparency and finding out even how you know investor groups and angel investor groups are, are just built for different incubators and accelerators going on in DC has been something I've been very interested in as of lately. Kelly, this is something that I know I've heard you, you know, we've had interviews in the past. I know this idea of, of network effect comes up in a lot of ways. You both give tactical skills of like, what does it mean to actually build a network to start in any environment in lots of forms? But I've also heard you speak about the lack of female entrepreneurship um, and network effect that happens there too. I wonder how much you've seen your advice around you know, networking, how much that has translated to network effect issues. And maybe could you even, how do you think about those two things as separate matters? Well, you know, so I think when we talk about network effects, you know, you've got to think about, you know, the ability for ideas to spread as well as to be adopted. You know, think of like a platform like Twitter relied on a network effect um, in terms of, you know, you and I use it and then we tell other people, you think of technically, you know, people say, hey, I'm using this, you should come and use this. And so that's what you get the network effects. But we're also talking about with this, we're talking about network gaps. And there is the gap that we're talking about where people don't have the networks, right? And you think about a founder who doesn't look like a room of white men, you know, their gap to get into that room. But we also have to look at the investor side of it. They have a massive blind spot, right? Because their networks probably look like them. And that is really kind of critical where we sort of start thinking of where does invention come from? Let me you know, talk about this kind of stuff. What we, the old what you can't be, what you can't see kind of ideas. If we look at invention right now based on holding patents, 82% of patents right now are held by white men in their 40s. That's like, those can't be the only inventors. 
time out, you know, wrong, eh, wrong answer, right? I feel there's an incredible burden on founders, particularly undervalued and overlooked founders, like the amount of advice dish on them on what they need to do to bust into networks, right? So that they benefit from these network effects. But I want to look at it from the perspective of those with the network, right? So those with the money, right? The typically the white investors who are male, who are thinking, oh, I've, I know everything. I'm in the pinnacle of information flows. We do have a degree of, of an investor class and an entrepreneur class that essentially says, like, I'm doing my job. I'm not racist. I'm not, I'm not actively causing problems. <laughs> that, that is like where the heart of network effect happens, right? Like, can we get at like that? You know, it's the idea of like Angela Davis's sense of, of anti-racism, the difference between not actively doing anything bad as opposed to not actively doing anything good and, and how that shows up in some of our understanding of, of network effect. When you're not actively trying to break down your network, your network itself is making a decision for you. Yeah. It's kind of a clumsy question, but yeah. I know how to work through your yeah. smoke and mirrors. Don't worry. Right, um, right. I think, I think if you're neutral, you're on the side of the oppressor. Like you're, you're siding, you're siding with that. Like in all different types of conversations we're having right now on, on the helms of racial inequity and the civil unrest and, and everything going on, you can't be neutral in these discussions. You can't be neutral in these rooms. So I feel like for the people who are, who are like, I'm not doing bad things, but I'm also not pushing forward an agenda or supporting, you know, something specifically, you, you might as well, you might as well be doing the bad stuff, in my opinion. Right. I think as, as soon as you think you have all the connections, it's like assuming you have all the answers, as soon as you're, soon as you allow yourself to be in that space or utter those words, then, then you need to go and check yourself. You know, I remember back, so it would have been sort of 2011, 2012, when I had co-founded a startup accelerator. And I remember talking to a VC who said to me, well, I, I see everything. You know, and it was, you know, straight white dude, well-intentioned, became one of the greatest mentors of our accelerator. But I was looking at him thinking, tell me how you were seeing every female founded mobile venture, you know, like, tell me how you're doing that. That's what was running through my head. But his attitude was, well, I see everything that's like worth investing in. So why, why do we need another accelerator? And, you know, as soon as you think that way, you've lost it. Like you've lost, I think you've lost your way. I think we always need to be kind of, you know, checking our attitudes and for our, for the health of our own, you think of it from a VC perspective, from the health of your own investment pipeline, you're going to be checking the health of your network on a, on a regular basis. Can you say more like, what do you mean by health? Well, I mean, one of these things, you write a book on networking and everyone's like, oh, I know how to work a room, right? Or I know how to set up a Twitter account, right? And then like, no, 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 no. You know, the book is called, you know, build your dream network, not make networking a dream. It's like, what is the structure and composition of your network so that it is, I want to say, fueling whatever your professional career startup ventures are? And do you have, there's sort of two structures to a network. There are the deep, close relationships and then there are the broad, shallow relationships. And those broad, shallow relationships are the ones where you get ideas to travel further. So do you have the fullest extent of diversity 
right? You may not have a depth of relationships, but do you have a full degree of diversity in every shape and form from, you know, gender, sexual orientation, geography, title, industry, you need all of that kind of stuff in your network. You know, there's that great game that people play, the six degrees of separation, the six degrees of Kevin Bacon, that kind of stuff. Too many people end up with that narrow, deep network. That's all they've got. And that, in essence, is an echo chamber. So if you think from the VC perspective and not checking the health of your network, you can get to, you know, you think some VCs, they can get to anybody in the VC industry. But if they want some different idea, they're still stuck in that very narrow, deep I'm glad you can pick up the phone and get Mark Andreessen on the phone, or I'm glad you can pick up the phone and get Steve Case on the phone. Can you get uh, someone else? You may not be getting the rich diversity of investments because everyone you're talking to also knows each other. So it may look like a very impressive network you have because you've got all these bold-faced names, but if you're just talking to each other, you know, this is a gold-plated echo chamber, and that's, that doesn't get you very far. So in terms of, like, your network, you can't just think of, hey, do I have a great elevator pitch, and can I work a room, whether it's digital or in person? It's like, what's the health and the structure of my network? Do I have trusted people I can, you know, talk to? And do I have enough diversity in a broader network that I can tap in to get into their diverse networks? Yeah, I want to echo that for a second, Chris. Like I was talking about, I was just getting interested in how these networks are built. I straight up asked an investor, you know, who was part of an angel group that was all white men and, and, and yet half of their accelerator class who eventually was going to be pitching to these people were 50% women-owned and Black-owned businesses. And I was like, how can you have that? And you don't have anybody on your investor panel that looks like them. Like, what was the networking like in order to, you know, what did it look like? I, I just genuinely was curious, like, how did you get to this point of, of having 12 white men on this angel investor group? And he was like, you know, well, that's my network. Those are the people that I know. And I'm like, well, where are you networking and what needs to change? And I'm asking this since that clearly this is a trend going on where you only are attracting people who look like you, not doing anything good but also not doing anything bad in your eyes because you're just pulling from what you already know, but you need to dig deeper. You need to network differently. You need to attract different types of people, but also, are you afraid? Like, is it intimidating? I don't know at this point, but um, yeah, that's interesting. One of the most, like in investor Twitter over the last, I mean, much of this year, <laughs> there's been, a, there's been like a call for the, like the death of the warm intro. And it's complicated in my mind. Like I follow there's two tracks, right? There is, hey, I get a lot of volume of, of inquiry and it's hard in a, in a 125 word email to validate this. We all as individuals understand the idea of a warm intro. If you're at like a party and a friend says, hey, here's my friend, there's a degree of, okay, I understand some, there's some degree of, of vetting. I can approach this differently. But in like investor Twitter and in, in heavily white male communities, there's that conversation of, well, then it becomes very self-fulfilling that if most of your network is already white male, if you're more willing to take a pitch from someone who's done a warm intro, you're more likely to get that like same community around. And so I, I both get breaking out of warm intro. I also, at the end of the day, that is like how all of us operate like at a party. There's, there's like a very human element of what like a warm intro is. And so I guess maybe we're just saying there's a difference between you at a party and you doing your job. And right. maybe sure, you at a party, warm intro does something. But 
when you're trying to break your network, your network effect, you need to do something active. And warm intro is being perceived as this like representative evil of it. It's messy though. I wonder if you guys have thoughts on that. The warm intro. Well, there's, we still have Neanderthal brains. Someone lands in your inbox or, you know, someone is coming towards you at a party. Are they friend or foe? And when they are introduced by someone we know, right, that cuts through like that trust barrier, like, okay, they're not going to come and attack me kind of thing. Like all of a sudden you're listening and you're hearing differently because their bona fides have been, you know, kind of accounted for. So I think the warm intro remains really, really critical. And I don't think, you know, lots of our brains have been rewired, but that piece hasn't. I think the piece we don't talk about, Chris, in the startup world, the key thing I know, yes, investors want a warm intro, but who do they want the warm intro from? And they want it from someone in their network, but it's not necessarily the most trusted warm intro in the investment pipeline is from a startup founder, which then signals to me for startup founders, you have to stop pitting yourself against other startup founders. We're too busy in like sort of the networking world of trying, when we're networking, trying to build relationships with the muckety mucks at the top, right? Whether that's a VC or if you're, you know, CEO or whatever. And we overlook the most critical network, which is your peers. So for startup founders, your best bet is to getting to know other startup founders. Because if they say, damn, like this person's got a great idea and their work ethic is out of control and their team is the most creative and collaborative. If I'm a VC and I'm hearing this from a startup founder, I'm going to sit up and pay attention. But another, but, another, but another investor going, oh yeah, there's this great startup, you should talk to them. You know, like you hear that all the time. About 20 minutes into this conversation, we were finally joined by Nasir Quadre. He's the founding managing partner of Zeal Capital Partners, if you remember. So to bring him into the conversation, I asked him about this concept of warm intros, whether needing someone to introduce you to someone else is inevitable or toxic or maybe both. So first, you recognize that we all have our blind spots. And it's the reason why where capital has gone over the past decade, 80% has gone in three places. And then you have 80, 90% of capital being injected into white men that are graduates from five on average universities. The truth is really, I too have my own blind spots. You know, I went to an HBCU day, by the way. And so I'm representing Hampton University. And one can argue that, Ms. Lear, you have blind spots as well. Maybe my pipeline is only HBCU graduates, for example. But I think the two key words here is being proactive and being intentional. And uh, obviously, pre-COVID, my saying was that we have to expand our traveling dollars and, and travel more than 20 miles outside of Menlo Park, Manhattan, and Cambridge. And I bet you, when you proactively do that, you will... Uh, you will those uh, those investors will expand their pipeline, will expand their network, that will yield a more inclusive, diverse pipeline of companies, founders who are getting a fair swing at the plate. And I think that's what's happening today. You have investable companies who come from the middle of the country, from South, from Atlanta to Detroit, here in D.C., who unfortunately are not getting a fair swing at the plate. So we got to democratize access to capital, democratize venture capital, and that's. 
through our inclusive investing strategy at Zeal Capital Partners, one that just I just launched, is meant to be an exemplar. Our North Star is that when you have a diverse team, we will over-index our allocation, our capital allocation, to invest in entrepreneurs who often being repetitive here, who don't get a fair swing of the plate. And so that is the strategy that, that I built at eight, Apple leading AT&T social investment fund. And then prior to that, global head of education at Village Capital. And it works when you proactively do it and you are intentional, your networks look much bigger. And from that point, you I like the term expanding our dinner table, which is from a social unrest, but that's what, that's what we have to do more is, is expand our dinner table to really understand each other. That's mm. another kind of But I do think they, they coincide with each other. So I'll pause there. I love the comment about blind spots. It reminds me of a dinner with, I had the good fortune of sitting next to Alan Patrikoff and he made the comment about an investment that he overlooked because you talk about a blind spot. And this guy from Seattle had this idea for a chain of coffee shops. And Alan was like, I got diners on every corner in New York and I got bodegas. Why do I need? And so he turned down Howard Schultz and investing in Starbucks. Like, we have blind spots, you know, based on where we were raised and, you know, where we live. And it's exactly your point. Like, if we don't recognize we have blind spots, if we turn off our creativity and our, our curiosity, you know, buttons and we think we know it, everything, that's where you're massively in danger, uh, not just with your own fund, your own life, your own career. At this point, we were at time. Uh, Kelly, Nasir, Michelle, and I riffed, and we were at the end of the session. We had to go to the next at this conference. But Nasir spoke about the importance of proactively expanding your network, both as investor and, and fund manager. And we wanted to understand how that was done. So we wanted to follow up with him. Michelle is a busy lady, so is Nasir. So we ended up actually having technically assistant editor Stephen Babcock sit down with Nasir to dig in a little bit more, specifically how important it is for investors to expand their network for both moral reasons and also financial ones. It's incredibly important to recognize the genius in Black people. I'm just going to bluntly say it and not be apologetic about it. I mean, genius is everywhere. There is a, a missing opportunity when we don't proactively invest in innovation that's led by Black people. And I think that's the way the structure of private markets and venture capital, more specifically, has been built that has not afforded Black entrepreneurs the ability to have capital and realize their business's full potential. It's a $4.4 trillion missing opportunity when we're not investing in women and people of color. And when you think about the assets under management here in the U.S. is 70 trillion, close to 70 trillion assets under management. Only 1.3 look like myself and women. So that's managed by people of color and women. And then we know that when you invest in black women and diverse founders in general, you do outperform. When you have a diverse management team, you outperform. And so there's these clear metrics that clearly show that when you're sourcing companies with a racial equity lens, it's a good chance that your portfolio will outperform as well. And so it's for the investor's benefit to proactively invest in companies with a racial equity lens if he or she is looking to have an outperforming fund. But I think it goes back to, again, the network effects, right? 
if you're going to have an investment strategy that invests in companies with the racial equity lens and you expect to have a network effect as it relates to your ability to source these companies all across the country, then it's important that you that you incorporate that in your mandate. You incorporate your pledge or I think that's another question, right? Like how do you hold funds accountable to ensure that they're betting on black people or they're betting on black entrepreneurs and women? And we've done things such as we created a pledge, right? And so for every company that we invest in has to be either current or potential. So most of the company, just given the way our networks and the way we're structured as a firm, will be investing mostly in women and people of color. But even if you're an all-white Stanford grad, we'll still look to invest in you, just given that you coincide with two of our sectors. But we have operating partners that will, we have Rachel Williams, who is former DNI at, at StubHub. We have operators who spent time in the future of work in fintech space. So helping you think thoughtfully about your recruiting and your talent strategy. And so I think that's also the case. It's like when you think about post-investment value creation, once you invest in a company and you think about your value add to that company, not just you know sitting on his or her board or providing introductions, but also just having the systems in place that will allow this founder to to really beef up other areas like recruiting and sales and, and product and technology, for example. But particularly the, the recruiting, the, the talent is important as we think about increasing teams, diverse teams that are diverse in gender and ethnicity. But we do that because we know that when we do that, the fund more than likely will outperform just given having diverse pr- perspectives. But investing with a racial equity lens, it benefits the power of just showing the breadth of, of innovation across our country. And it's a missing opportunity or missing narrative and missing investment opportunity when we don't do that, when we don't proactively intention, with, with intentionality seek those founders who deserve capital. Backing diverse fund managers is also, I'd argue, an even more critical component of making change because the truth is diverse fund managers who have a closer network and uh, a differentiated sourcing strategy than your traditional investor can really yield positive impact. Yes, I love his outright saying that the genius of Black people as both like a moral imperative, but to him, even more importantly, as a major economic opportunity. Right. And and this is something we hear again and again. There are those investment who see the social justice side of changing the makeup of their work as the most important, that moral imperative. But I've interviewed plenty who, who almost find that dismissive, that it's seen as missing the bigger point, that this is purely and fundamentally a consequence of doing one's job. If you're an investor that's meant to maximize returns and find the best opportunities, then you surely have to understand that you are missing things if one's network effect is really limited. You know, if your spider web is perhaps never intersecting with others. Huh. Yeah, I see what you did there. I also think it's important to know how he developed his network over time from running a coffee shop to a corporate job to working at a firm like Village Capital that is working to change private company investing to now building his own firm. Right. And that firm, like that's that's beautiful. And Kelly adapting her advice for networking to be about navigating the insidious nature of network effect. That's beautiful stuff. And we technically do a lot of reporting about it. But something I come back to a lot, Michelet, and 
full disclosure, I don't want to be the downer in this podcast, but is that enough? No, not at all. But also, it doesn't have to be a downer if that becomes motivating, though. If every investor at big institutional firms and individuals like angel investors, if they all just confronted the fact that the way venture capital has been done for the last half century is not equitable or even financially successful, if they get that change, that can mm. do something meaningful. Yeah. And that that's a lot. <laughs> it's that dirty secret that a whole lot of VC firms do not outperform indexed funds. And that's got to be part of the logic. So that's profound. Michele, thank you for your reporting, for that feedback, and for having the conversation, and for being here. For sure. You got it, winky wink, winkle doodle, sir. Okay, that is it. We, we are a professional bunch here at Technically. That is the first episode of the second season of Off the Sidelines, your investor education podcast. Off the Sidelines is sponsored by Project Entrepreneur, a program by UBS. If you love this, subscribe. Even better, leave a comment. Frankly, even if you just like it, leave a comment. It is oh so helpful. Tell Michelle how smart you think she is. Like always, music is by Blue Dot Sessions. This episode was produced by Q9 Creative, including Kevin Schmidlin and Catherine Nails. The episode was mixed and edited by Max Graham. I'm technically CEO Chris Wink. We'll be back next week. <laughs>